My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our love shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't know because everything is just fine. I'm recording this intro having just read a bunch of reports about the Paradise Papers, the leaked stash of 13.4 million documents that reveal the complex webs of profit shifting that allow companies to avoid paying tax in places like Australia. It's making me think, not only are we dupes to hyper-consumerism, a system that is set up to con us into buying crazy amounts of stuff that we don't need, barely want, and can't even fit in our houses in many cases, so we're renting storage facilities and throwing so much stuff away. But also, we're lining the pockets of the 1%. The multinational fat cats, the slippery accountants, and that makes me mad. Most of those named in the Paradise Papers are public figures, from Trump to the Queen. Or they're mining or media companies, so Amazon, Facebook, etc. Fashion isn't the headline in this particular story, but Nike does get a special mention. So the sportswear giant has paid a tax of just 1.4% on its accumulated global offshore profits of US dollars, 12 billion. So all the shoes they sell here, the Australian tax office is getting almost nothing. Although we have to pay our taxes. It doesn't seem fair. This is interesting in the light of what we discuss in today's episode with Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. He's also the author of a fascinating new book called Curing Affluenza. It's the sequel, if you like, to a book that he co-wrote back in 2005 with Clive Hamilton, and that one was simply called Affluenza. As Richard says in this interview, that was a shocking book and it called attention to our problem. You might think we would have tried to fix it, but 12 years later, we are still ailing. If anything, we're getting worse. But Richard argues there's nothing inevitable about our current mode of consuming and producing. On the contrary, he writes, the vast majority of humans who've ever lived and the majority of humans alive today would find the idea of using our scarce resources to produce things that are designed to be thrown away absolutely mad. Richard defines consumerism as the love of buying things. For some, he writes, that means the thrill of hunting for a bargain. For others, it's the quest for the new or the unique. And for others still, it is that moment when the shop assistant hands them their new purchase, beautifully wrapped with a bow, just as though it's a present. But increasingly, we've lost sight of the true value and the true cost of the things that we buy. He argues that we need to reshape the economy towards experiences rather than stuff. He admits that's going to hurt some people, but he says that has to happen. 
He says that to cure our affluenza, we have to learn to be satisfied with the stuff we already own. This book is really thought-provoking, although a bit economics-y, but I find myself agreeing with a lot of what Richard has to say. Not all of it. I think it's easier for someone like Richard, who's got zero interest in fashion and doesn't understand its appeal, to argue that we don't need it. But we do need people like Richard to jolt our thinking about how we might reimagine our economic system in future and to be daring and to say the stuff that maybe we don't want to hear. Because I think wherever you sit on this debate, you have to admit, we're at a weird place. Buying things to throw away is crazy town. It's not serving us or the planet. Although somewhere, someone is getting rich out of it. Richard, have you ever been interviewed about economics by a fashion editor? No, this is a first. (laughs) And I wouldn't be surprised if it's a last. (laughs) Be careful here, Richard, because there are fashionistas listening. But what is your view of the fashion industry in terms of, and one of the obvious things here is trends and that idea of built-in obsolescence, the idea that something's in today and it's out tomorrow? I don't have very strong views about the fashion industry because I don't think about it very often. But when I do think about it, I think about it in in a number of ways. On the one hand, humans, including myself, um, like novelty. We shouldn't be surprised, 7,000 years of recorded history, people like new things. And fashion provides new things. And when I was young, I remember there were things I wanted to wear and there were things I really didn't want to wear. Like what did you want to wear? I I can't... Well, I didn't want to wear my school uniform and I didn't want to wear my school shoes and, oh, I think I wore some hideous clothes to my year 10 and year 12 uh, You know I'm going to ask you to describe them because I want to know. All I can say is lime green featured. Yeah, okay, it was 1985. Did you have a piano tie? I didn't have a piano tie, but, you know, if someone had offered me one, I'd have probably been into that. And yet the fashion industry is this vehicle for pushing forward this idea that stuff is obsolete after in fashion terms. Well, that's it. So on the one hand, humans like novelty, and I've been there, and I'm not really there anymore, as your listeners can't quite see right now, but I probably don't spend much time thinking about what I wear day in and day out. But I I don't mind that other people do. But I guess as an environmentally concerned person, I'm always worried when I see an industry whose profit requires people to chuck out perfectly good things, not because they're not perfectly good things anymore, but because the symbolic function of that thing is said to be outdated. And I, again, I've made all sorts of fashion and economic mistakes in my youth. I, I don't mean to mock people for trying, but when you're sold a $1,000 pair of shoes on the idea that they'll last a lifetime, yet you're told a year later that they're the wrong colour now, you've been played. This is what we're going to get down into the nitty-gritty of. Good. But this idea that we're buying something because it's in... Mm is also accompanied by this other idea that we're buying something because it gives us high status. Absolutely. And status matters. I think we have to be careful and in sort of saying, well, everyone should forget about status. Well, it's not possible. Sit on mountaintops and kind of meditate their way to a sense of self. You know, I probably was guilty of thinking that at some point in my past. I don't think it anymore. I think that Again, 7,000 years of recorded history says that humans seek status from a a wide range of activities. And I don't think that's going to stop soon. But what's new is the idea that a way to accumulate status in a society 
is to buy expensive stuff with money you don't have to impress other people and then throw it away. That's new. Seeking status isn't new. Men once wore cod pieces. Let's never forget that. That makes my lime green pants look like a great idea. And all those ruffled neck pieces. And all, right, they so, were loved by men at that time. Absolutely. So that's, you know... Can I just say doublet and hose? Because I've always wanted to say it. Doublet and hose was that bonkers kind of puffer... Oh, OK, skirt right. Elizabethan men wore. Right. And ne- with tights. Never worn a pair myself. Uh, in 10 years' time, maybe everyone will. So from my point of view, people pursue status through what they wear, through where they live, through beating other people up by being taller. You know, people wear lifts in their shoes because some people think status and height. So that's fine. Humans chase status. But what's new in our society is the idea that status can be rented one expensive purchase at a time and that this status doesn't last for very long, so you have to keep making that purchase again and again. And if the only thing being harmed in the generation of that status was other people's bank accounts, I probably wouldn't care, because if people want to waste their money on something, why should I stop them? But it's not just clothes, but the idea that we throw out perfectly good functional material objects, be they shoes or pants or kitchen bench tops because someone said they're not fashionable anymore, when 8 billion people try to play that game, the planet can't cope. So I don't mind that people want to change what they look like all day long, but the way that we've decided to signal that to people is literally unsustainable. Just, um, we will get onto this whole idea of waste, because I think it's very key to this conversation, and also just to everything that's being discussed now broadly in the fashion industry and beyond. But I just want to talk about status a little bit more. Now, I'm presuming, Richard, that you've never looked at the price of a designer dress. Uh, I've never once in my life looked at the price of a designer dress. But I wanted to raise it because I get these emails every day from Net-A-Porter and Matches. And one of them was like, party dresses. So I got a bit excited and thought, okay, I need the next gold, whatever it is, dress for the Christmas party season. These were the prices of the dresses. So there was a Saint Laurent little black dress. It was $2,565. A little ruffly McQueen number. That was $5,575. Wow. And then the last one was a Balmain, not Balmain, <laughs> mini dress, and it was 6630 bucks. How about that? Now, it's Imagine not... how happy you'd be if you owned that. Well, would you? Because this is the thing. It's not couture. <laughs> it's not an art piece. It's ready to wear. It's off the rack. Mm. I happen to know that these dresses do not cost that to make. No. So what, from your perspective as an economist, are we paying for? Well, you're paying for someone else's profit. Look, it's not just dresses that sell for a lot more than they cost to produce. When you go to the supermarket and you buy milk for $2, you can go buy that same milk at a petrol station and pay $4. Same milk, same company, same brand, twice the price. Because the people that own the supermarket are the same people who own the petrol station and they know that people in a hurry will pay more than people who aren't in a hurry. So they charge you more. So it's a complete misnomer to think that the price we pay for things is in any way, in any way reflected to the cost of producing them. So what are we paying for? We're paying for convenience, we're paying for status, we're paying for marketing. Yeah, that's it. That's what you're paying for. You're paying for convenience, you're paying for status, you're paying for marketing, and you might be paying for some functional value. But probably not. But in fashion, you're paying for the dream, the dream of the life that you want to imagine living. Yeah, or the dream that other people look at you and think you must be rich. Or, no, But again, this isn't new. 
like, you know, men used to wear medals on their chest to show how brave they were. Now we wear logos on our chest to show how rich we are. It's not a coincidence that these medals were displayed in exactly the same place that we put the logo. Yeah. So That's interesting. Well, look, you know, so fashion is solving somebody's problem. It's just not a material problem. It's a status problem. It's a symbolism problem. And that doesn't mean they're trivial. Symbols matter. You know, try telling the Christian church that crosses aren't an important symbol. Symbols matter. But we've created a culture, we've created a community in which some companies make a fortune selling symbols to us. And those symbols don't cost much to make, but they've convinced us that we should be willing to pay a high price for them. And hats off to them. It's worked a treat. What about that idea that by presenting more and more expensive products or more and more luxury, we're convincing people to buy something that's the next rung up from what they really need or what they were going to buy before? There's a story in your first book that you wrote with Clive Hamilton, Affluenza from 2005, that's about barbecues. Absolutely, yeah. Can you recap that for us? Yeah, sure. Look, once upon a time, the idea of an enormous $10,000 stainless steel barbecue was ridiculous. So when we wrote the book 10 years ago, we we had to explain to people that the purpose of the $10,000 barbecue was to sell the $1,000 barbecue. I find that even though I know this and it's like obvious, until he points it out, it's not obvious. And I find that disturbing, shocking and annoying. Oh, good. Well, I'm I'm doing my job. (laughs) I'm disturbing and annoying. But so people really just go to barbecues galore. They see the $6,000 one. They think, I was going to buy this $300 Weber. Yeah. But now I'm going to buy the next. The middle price one. Because oh, exactly, because I didn't realise I was so was cheap. I didn't realise I was... Uh, here was me thinking I was comfortably middle class, maybe even almost wealthy, and it turns out I'm buying the cheapest barbecue they've got. What's one wrong with my life? So, yeah, no, shops know this, and they kind of can't lose. If someone buys the $10,000 barbecue, great. And if the $10,000 barbecue just helps ship the $1,000 barbecue, Great. And you know this, dear listener, because you're thinking, when I mentioned the Alexander McQueen dress that cost five grand, you were thinking, well, that's ridiculous, I haven't got five grand. But you are actually looking at the next rung down, thinking maybe if I save up and don't spend any money on rent and get in some more debt and get a bigger credit card limit, I could get one. That's right. And so it normalises the idea that that's what other people are doing, that that's what other people can afford, so why can't I? Now, of course, you see someone wearing a $5,000 dress, what you don't see is their credit card statement. So you're, you, it's easy to convince yourself that everyone else can afford these things. Or in the celebrity case, they've borrowed it anyway. That's right, or it was given to them for free to help sell it to people like you watching it. So, look, but again, I'm quite libertarian. I don't care what people do. Like, if people want to blow their money on a car, they want to blow their money on a boat, they want to blow their money on a dress, I say, if it's your money and you can afford to do it, knock your socks off. But where I worry, especially with fashion, is that young people are getting very mixed messages and before they've figured out that the bank isn't their friend, that before they've figured out the fact that someone's willing to lend you 10 grand to buy stuff doesn't make it a good idea to spend 10 grand buying stuff, they go out and they load up and it can literally take 10 years to repay those summer splurges. You are worried about affluenza. Now, I want to talk about how you define that, Richard. Well, affluenza is often defined as the desire to spend money you don't have buying things you don't need to impress people you don't know. Yikes. Yeah. But I actually think it's, in the book I say, look, it's actually more of a cultural phenomena than a particular event. 
So I can't point at you or anyone's consumption and say, that bit there, that was dumb, that was a bad decision. I I wouldn't judge any individual's decision-making about that. What I'm saying in the book is that collectively, our culture tells us that buying stuff will make us happy, that wearing old stuff makes us feel uncool and bad about ourselves, and indeed, the bizarre part from an economist's point of view, that if we go out and spend a lot of money on stuff that we don't really need and then we give it away or chuck it away, we've helped the economy. Mm. We've actually turned waste and indulgence into a community service. Oh, I'm creating jobs. No, you're not. You're wasting money or hopefully not wasting money. Hopefully you're just having fun with your shoes or your dress or your car or your bike. What do retailers say when you say that to them? Oh, well, they, they conflate, they confuse what's good for them with what's good for the economy. Imagine if we all stopped spending so much on ties and socks and shoes and shirts and we spent all of that money learning French, learning to dance, getting a maths tutor for our kids or getting a massage. The impact on the economy, and I'm using my words carefully here, would be zero. What we'd be doing is reshaping the economy. Part of the economy would be smaller, the retail sector, and part of the economy would be bigger. But we've got this weird fantasy story that we now tell ourselves and we're told by our leaders and business leaders and politicians that, you know, if the retail sector's growing, then the economy's doing well. No, if the retail sector's doing well, the retail sector's doing well. That's OK, I don't begrudge them that, but that's got nothing to do with me. As a person who does love the fashion world to some extent and operates within it, and I do love shopping and I do love shops, although I'm not keen on rampant overconsumption, and these days I'm trying not to buy things or to buy things much more mindfully and certainly to buy things that I know have been made responsibly. But I wouldn't like to see no shops. Shops are part of community, aren't they? They are. And and this is sort of the weird, and I'm not accusing you of this, but this is the weird kind of binaries that we've created in our public debate now. Ah, so you say we spend too much money in the shops. You want to shut all the shops down. (laughs) No, I don't want to shut all the shops down at all. Every time I need... I'm going to get a hashtag, save the shops. Yeah, look, every 10 years or so when I need a new pair of shoes, I'm glad there's a shoe shop there to help me out. The question isn't do we need shops or don't we? The question is how many shops do we need? And when we've convinced ourselves that the funnest thing you can do on a weekend is go and buy some stuff you might never wear, then the parts of the economy that sell stuff you'll probably never wear grow. But again, every dollar you spend on that stuff is a dollar you didn't spend growing some other part of the economy. So, no, no, the shops aren't going to go away. They're still going to have stuff in them. And similarly, there's no reason that shops can't make as much, if not more money, selling second-hand stuff as they do selling new stuff. I mean, certainly, I know that's not your argument, but I would say certainly selling better stuff because some of the terrifying stuff to me about our hyper-consumerist culture is the way that we buy stuff ostensibly just to throw away yeah. bits of plastic and in the funny book, toys that come by the container load from china we don't actually want or need any of that stuff. no and and in the book i distinguish between consumerism which i refer to as the love of buying things like the, the purchase the act of purchase so for me consumerism is the love of buying but materialism is the love of the object itself So if you uh, love a pair of shoes or love your car or love your push bike, or if you loved something, just think about what that word means, then you'd probably 
care for it, look after it, maintain it, get it repaired if necessary. But if you just loved buying things, that's quite different. If you loved buying things, you would chuck out that pair of shoes you bought recently or you'd give them to charity and convince yourself you were helping people. If you loved buying things, you would discard those loved objects very quickly because what you're probably chasing is the thrill of a new purchase rather than the love of the object itself. So I guess unlike a lot of people in the environmental space, I'm sort of saying we need to love our stuff. We need to embrace materialism. We don't just need to sit on a mountaintop and meditate with no things. I'm the opposite. I think you've got to love your stuff. Whatever you've got, if it makes you happy, great. Glad to hear it. Have you Look read that Marie Kondo book in which she suggests you hold every item you're thinking of getting rid of close to your heart and see if it sparks joy? Uh, I've not read the book. I'm aware of her, her philosophy. Yeah, Look, big picture, I guess I go along with that. I mean, I used to move house a lot because, you know, I was young and lived by myself and didn't own a house. And my approach was every time I'd think about buying something, I'd think, do I want to dust it? and do I want to move it? That's such a male thing to think. Well, but my point is, you know, I'm moving house every six months. If I could chuck it all in my car, then that felt good. So... I mean, I know that I could be accused of gender binary discussion there, but I do think that's such a man practical thing to think. I don't think women look at shopping in quite that way, do they? Do I I need it? Am I going to have to move it if I move apartments? Yeah, look, maybe, maybe not. But I guess what I'm saying is we need to think... I don't care what you think, but we need to think before we pull money out of our pocket and buy something new. And we're trained to not do that. Okay, so apart from for our own personal happiness, satisfaction, equilibrium, why else do we need to cure affluenza? Well, look, I don't know what people should do to make themselves happy, but... But what yeah. about the other stuff? I'm talking about the environment. Oh, no, about... I will, but, but big picture. I mean, for, for people that think buying stuff makes them happy, maybe they're right. I'd just say, look at the scoreboard. Look at all the stuff you've bought and ask yourself, did it work? You know, and if you're on the right track, why would you change course? But most people that I've spoken to about this stuff would probably admit that they've probably wasted a lot of money on some stuff in hindsight that probably didn't make them that happy transient happiness at that moment they bought it maybe but joy not so much but look there's seven and a half billion people on the planet and australia is one of the richest countries in the world we live at the richest point in world history and most australians feel poor most australians feel broke how can this be how how can the richest people the world has ever known feel this poor and the answer is because we've been told that we don't have nearly enough stuff or that the stuff we've got is the wrong stuff and I've just got to chuck it out and get the right stuff quick. So I guess I'd say, look, if the richest people in the world can't be happy with the amount of stuff they can afford, then probably buying more stuff isn't going to make you happy. First thing I'd say. Second thing is, well, let's say there's six of the 7.5 billion people in the world that can't afford to buy stuff and chuck it out like we do. But they want to be as rich as us. So what would the world look like if 7.5 billion people made the piles of waste that we make each year. That's not going to happen. So if we don't want to have enormous environmental problems or enormous conflicts with poor people around the world that want to be as rich as us, I think we're going to have to find a new way of having fun because we can't say, well, we get to live like this, but you guys, no, 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 you can't. And then the third thing I'd say we hear so much about how important it is to, you know, have a strong economy and create jobs and blah, blah, blah. Most of it's complete nonsense. But big picture, these things matter to people a lot, rightly so. 
But the idea that a country can get rich by importing stuff made in a, a factory overseas and then chucking it in the recycling bin, the idea that a country gets rich somehow during that, that's bizarre. <laughs> so, And yet why do we persist in believing that that's fine? Because a, a lot of people make an enormous amount of money out of us believing Profit. that to be true. Profit is different from good for the economy. So hats off. Whoever sold us this story, I mean, give yourself a pat on the back and probably drink some very expensive champagne, which is, I'm sure, what they're doing on our behalf right now, because our willingness to spend, to indeed borrow money we don't have, to buy this stuff and then replace it next year so their profits continue to grow, our willingness to do that is voluntary. No one's holding a gun to our heads to buy this stuff. But the idea that importing that stuff and then chucking it out makes our economy strong is ridiculous. The fact that it's profitable is different from its making our country wealthy. You must ruffle feathers when you say this <laughs> in certain circles. <laughs> I ruffle feathers? And what were those pants you were talking about before? I, I, I ruffle those too. Um, yeah, I do, because what I'm saying, um, and on the one hand, how, how arrogant to say, look, you know, 24 million people have been conned. It's not as simple as that. 24 million people are busy. 24 million people have got lives full of all sorts of things to worry about, and the macro economy is not one of them. So I don't blame people for not having thought about this stuff. I haven't thought about what they think about all day long. But I wasn't thinking that you must ruffle feathers amongst shoppers. I was thinking in the corridors of power amongst oh, yeah, those who are wrecking off the profits. Absolutely. Um, but what of course, kinds of reactions have you had? Because well, you must talk to government people. Yeah, I do. And look, What we, are they, government people? Shows <laughs> government how much of an outsider I am. Yeah. <laughs> no, look, but I guess these arguments hold outside of fashion as well. I mean, Australia is currently being told that as part of our approach to tackling climate change, taxpayers should subsidise the construction of the world's largest coal mine, the Adani coal mine. That's ridiculous. That's not going to create any jobs. The people that own the mine have said it'll be automated from pit to port. But when you promise people, we can help you, we're going to create jobs for you, and you're unemployed and you're scared, and I'm trying to do something to help, I don't blame people for going along with that. I blame people for misleading them, but I don't blame people that live in Queensland and want a job for believing that. In the same way that unemployed young people that might want to work in retail might genuinely believe that if we all went out and wasted enough money on stuff, they could get more shifts. I don't blame them for thinking that, but it's not going to work. <laughs> when you first began talking about this in 2005 when the book came out and before when you were researching it, I'd love to know how you think the climate has changed in terms of how that book was received and how people are receiving this. Because I would say that my own experience is that these conversations are becoming more prevalent and more popular. I mean, I'm, they're sort yeah. of going into the mainstream more. Yeah. Look, 10 years ago when we wrote Affluenza, it was, I think it was a real shock to people. Australia had long seen itself as the land of the sicky and the smoko and the long weekend. And we were a relaxed kind of people that didn't really have chips on their shoulders. And we had a tall poppy syndrome. We cut people down when they got a bit uppity. And what we said... <laughs> For anyone listening to this is not from Australia. Oh, that was gold. Oh, there's a, there's a right raw Australian slang there. Um, but the, my po I deliberately used all those phrases because yeah. that's kind of how we used to describe gotcha. ourselves. That was our culture. And we came along in 2005 and said, that's dead. 
That stopped years ago. You're kidding yourselves. Australians work some of the longest hours in the world. We're wealth and status obsessed. We all feel poor, even though our incomes have never been higher. You know, we kind of held a mirror up, and I don't think most people like what they saw. But 10 years later, writing Curing Affluenza, I, I kind of feel things are actually worse now. Because, wow. Well, because 10 years ago, we were shocking people with something they hadn't realised. Now, people are like, yeah, nah, that's right, that's who we are. What's your point again? I've got my hands over my face because I'm thinking, goodness, that is worse, isn't it? It is. It's so not so just the levels of consumption. It's no, the fact no. that we know, but we're still doing exactly. it. Exactly. We, we, we're far more aware of it and we're still watching it happen. Maybe we feel a bit more queasy about it, but we haven't done anything to stop it. Hence, curing affluenza. Clearly, diagnosing it didn't help. <laughs> If anything, maybe we legitimised it. So, uh, oh my god, <laughs> I'm often accused of being cynical. It's okay. I think this is a conversation in which there needs to be a healthy dose of cynicism. Well, because, as you say, we know, but we haven't done anything about it. We know, for instance, that there's an environmental crisis. We know that climate change is real. We know that we're buying things at a rate that our parents would never have dreamed of, and yet we keep doing it. Yeah, and we know that some of the things we buy are made by people who are enslaved, if not impoverished, by the task. We know that the processes involved are, are incredibly harmful to the people's health. But we as a nation don't stand up for those people and we don't say, well, we're not going to allow imports from countries that treat people like that. We say, oh, we want to keep the cost of living down, even though, as I said before, there's really no relationship between cost of production and price. That's a con. Okay, let me just pick you up on that because I think if people are feeling that economics wasn't their strong subject at school, (laughs) could you just decode that last statement for us a little bit? Yeah, look, we've been told all our lives that the price of something is higher because they cost more to make. Let me be clear, no shop is keen to sell you things at a price that's lower than it costs them to buy it. So there's a kind of a minimum price for things which is related to their cost of production. But the sale price, the price they put it on the market for, has got nothing to do with how much it costs to produce and everything to do with how much they think they can get you to pay for it. So my favourite example of this is imagine a wine list. Now, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about everyone else. Most people... (laughs) I'm I'm everyone else. You don't know what I'm going to say. Most people don't want to buy the cheapest wine on the wine list. makes them feel a bit poor. So the most popular wine on most wine lists is the second cheapest wine. Now, most people think that a, a smart shop owner would queue up all their wines from cheapest to dearest. No, a smart shop owner would put their cheapest wine on the menu and sell it for the second cheapest price because they know that people will just buy the second cheapest wine. So why not make the highest profit margin you possibly can by putting your cheapest worst wine, not cheapest on the menu where no one will buy it, but second cheapest on the menu where most people will buy it. Doesn't profit make the world go round? Oh, profit makes people that make profit rich. <laughs> um, look, I'm not anti-profit, but in a, in a competitive economy, from an economist's point of view, a bit, bit of econobabble here, in a well-functioning market, if you're making a fortune selling cakes or shoes, that's great. Your profit will make other people think, oh, I should get into the cake or shoe business. And then they'll show up and either come up with a slightly better cake or a slightly better shoe or a similar cake at a slightly lower price. And as a customer, I'll benefit from that competition. But that might work 
when there's three bakeries in a small town? This is not how the fashion industry works. This is not how the smartphone industry works. This is not how the car industry, the entertainment industry, the bottled water industry. Most oh, industries <laughs> most, most industries have a small number of competitors who are all effectively have a very similar strategy. Never lower your price. Spend a lot on advertising. So think about if I wanted to set up... Or undercut your competitor and do try and lower the price. And I know we see that in the fashion industry with some of the big online giants. Oh, are... Online, yeah. So the, at the retail end, yep, yeah, this can happen. But look how in Australia when they show up, how everyone reacts. Oh, we, that's unfair. Someone selling a similar product at a lower price. So it's a double-edged sword. But no, profit isn't good or bad. Profit's just the difference between the price and the cost. In a well-functioning market, that sends a signal, hey, why don't people copy this? This is a good idea. But in many markets, it's the opposite. How do we reshape the economy then? Every time you put your hand in your pocket, you affect the shape of the economy. Deciding whether or not you're going to buy some imported plastic stuff for a Christmas present for your niece or nephew that they'll never use or whether or not to uh, get them a, a dancing lesson or a singing lesson, every time you make that decision, you have effectively voted for a particular product. I'd, this is going to sound weird, but you'll see where I'm heading in a sec. I'd never eaten out for breakfast until I turned 24. I made it through my whole childhood without ever having someone else scramble my eggs. In the last 20 years, Australians have decided that paying other people to scramble their eggs is a great idea. I'm one of them. And as a result, we've fundamentally reshaped not just our economy, but our culture. We even now talk about cafe culture. Why does cafe culture exist? The market didn't do it. The global economy didn't do it. We did it. We decided that that was a fun thing to spend our money on and the profits that the people made in those cafes made other people set up cafes and we reshaped the economy radically. And if we decided that we were going to get our shoes repaired instead of buy new ones, if we were going to get our appliances repaired, maybe even while we had a coffee at the repair cafe, if we all went and did that, I guarantee you capitalism would match our desires with a lot more people trying to sell us something to get themselves rich. That's I wanted how it to works. clap <laughs> <laughs> because it's not often that you hear a positive solution to some of the woeful stuff that's happening right now in the global economy and in particularly to the environment. And often on this podcast, we address some really deep depressing things, particularly around climate change and the environment. Here's something that's hopeful. Here's you saying, actually, we can reshape it. We have, have the power. Did already. Ten years ago, there were no smartphones. Ten years ago. So we don't have to wait for governments to do it. No, but I guess I would say, and I argue this in the book, that we shouldn't kind of get trapped into, so am I doing it or is someone else doing it? Is it, is it corporate social responsibility? Is it the government or is it me? My answer is all of the above. Mm. When we as individuals start to behave differently, for example, some of us got so smart about 10 years ago that we could remember to take a bag with us when we went to the shops. Uh, really complicated, I know, but it had kind of, you know, it had been too much for us for a long time there. And as more and more people started to take their own bags to get their stuff from the shops, more people saw what they were doing and went, oh, maybe I could remember to carry a bag too. And then as more and more people did that, it then became easier for governments to say, well, actually, what if we put a levy on plastic bags and encourage people to do this? But so it's not that, either or. One influences the other. That, that example 
is a good one, but it's also been really slow coming, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, life's slow. Like, change is slow. We all want to change the world tomorrow. But imagine how terrifying that would be. I kind of like a lot of the world I'm in now. I don't want to wake up tomorrow and figure out that you changed it. Like, democracy is supposed to be a bit hard and slow. I think we've told ourselves and been told some pretty dumb stories, but our constitution, our system of government with state governments and federal governments and local governments and all this stuff, it's actually deliberately designed to make us kind of carefully consider change and do it slowly. And if we could, and don't get me wrong, I wish I could click my fingers and, and implement policies that would stop us causing climate change tomorrow. I really wish I could. But if I had that power, if you had that power, then I reckon Rupert Murdoch might have it. And I don't think I'd like what he might do with it or someone else. So I know it's frustrating, but no, change is always going to be slow. But again, it's not as slow as we think. Ten years ago, there was no such thing as a smartphone. Today, what's a street directory? You know, who rings a hotel to ask them if they've got a room available? We have radically reshaped our economy in the last 10 years. When I was at university, there wasn't an internet. <laughs> Me neither. We so, had no email. Right. So my point is, so we're kind of told that we can't change things. I would say the opposite. We're going to change things. The only thing I can, I can put my hand on my heart and make one forecast with 100% confidence, in 20 years' time, the world won't look like it does today. We're just haggling over the direction of change and the pace of change. The one thing it won't look like is today. Do you wake up at night panicking about the climate? No. Really? No. I spend all day. <laughs> no, I do. Like, of course. I, you I, don't have 3am because your whole job is yeah. to worry about it. You know, but no matter how slow we've been and no matter how much we should have started 20 years ago, everything to, we do today will still make it better in 50 years' time. Like I, the cynic meets the optimist. <laughs> well, I am. I, I'm a cynical optimist. I optimism keeps me going, and cynicism keeps me angry. You just wrote the title of the <laughs> podcast, Richard. <laughs> okay, so how do we cure affluenza? Step one: we be aware that we might be suffering from it. We don't have to feel guilty about it. We just need to be self-reflective. Recognise you've got a problem. Recognise you've got a problem. Step two is understand that small changes do make a difference and you don't have to declutter your house in its entirety tomorrow and never buy a new thing ever again. If you start buying less crap that you don't really need, <laughs> that's great. How much less? Well, that's up to you and your credit card and your sense of self. And don't just think about yourself and your own spending decisions. Think about your community and your collective decisions. Because when communities get together and say, how about we ban plastic drinking bottles in our town? It happens. When states get together and say, how about we ban plastic bags? It happens. We can change the world. We will change the world. The question is in what direction? So, yep, do what you can in your own personal life. That's a good place to start. But don't switch off from what's happening in your community or indeed in your country because if we work at multiple levels, we'll, we'll get more done more quickly. What are the benefits top line that we're going to get if we could go down this path of trying to tackle our affluenza? Oh, you'll have a lot more money. 
<laughs> you, our natural environment will be in a much better shape. You'll live in a community where far more people have the kind of jobs they wish they had, uh, more people making, less people selling. And if you just can't imagine the hell of never buying new stuff, then you haven't been listening to what I'm saying. <laughs> Get new stuff. Word. <laughs> <laughs> but new stuff is different from every day I've just got to walk into a shop to buy something new. We can't all do that forever. Everyone knows that. When was the last time you bought something that you didn't need? Oh, when was the last time? Well, I think most of us waste most of our money when we haven't thought hard and prepared hard. So, oh, look, uh, buying phone chargers when I'm too stupid to pack one to go away with me. That's a good answer. You said affluenza is a public health problem that cannot be solved through individual piety. And then by opting out, it wasn't going to work. Yeah, look, individuals who want to take control of their own life, I understand that, going off grid, growing all your own food etc but if you're worried about things like climate change or you're worried about things like global inequality or you're worried about things like women working as slaves to make shoes for people well whether you buy the shoes they made or not is kind of irrelevant whether you didn't cause climate change is irrelevant to whether your kids or grandkids will experience it so I've got no problem with people kind of having a whole life that revolves around what they do in their backyard But I'd say to those people, don't stop there. If you're serious about solving the problem, you have to work at a a community and at a political level as well as as an individual. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests, and the issues that we've spoken about today hop on over to my website which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you